Imagine if a wife turned to a husband and, and she said to her husband, you say you love me. Prove it. Prove that you love me. Or maybe a, a child who would turn to their parents and say, well, you say you love me. Prove it. What would you be willing to do if someone challenged you in that way? Where, where would you draw the line? We're maybe willing to give up our time, our money, our talents, our gifts, our comfort. We're willing to sacrifice, aren't we, for the sake of love and to prove our love. But where would we draw the line? Where would we say, well, I'll go this far, but, but no further? And sometimes, sometimes we turn to God and, and we say to Him, well, you say you love me, but prove it. And that, that might especially rise up within us in times of trouble, times of tribulation. That's what we've been looking at in the early part of this chapter. The last time we looked at Romans 5, we looked at how trouble can arise. And when that trouble arises, it can make us question God's love, and it can make us even turn, and if not audibly, then in our hearts say, well, where's the proof? You know, He says He loves me, but, but where's the proof? Where's the evidence? wonder what God is willing to do to prove His love to us. When we say to Him, prove it, what's He willing to give to convince us of His love, to persuade us of His love? How does God prove His love for us? And He does. He actually takes up our challenge. He doesn't say, well, that's a blasphemous thought or these are blasphemous words, daring words to, to use against me. No, he, he, he takes it on. And, and he says, well, well, let me prove it to you. Let me give you the evidence of my love, even in the midst of trouble, even despite trouble. In fact, if you'll remember when we looked at the early verses of this chapter, the teaching is that God uses trouble to lead us into His love. And here in these verses, God proves He loves us despite the trouble that we might be surrounded with. So, how does God prove His love for us? Here's the first way. God proves His love for us with substitution. Substitution. And we see that here in verses 6 through 8, where we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And what Paul does here is he contrasts normal love with abnormal love. Normal love, he, just, he speaks of here in verse 7 one will scarcely die for a righteous person. 
It says here, here's normal love. Normal love will give up time and money and gifts and comfort. Normal love will sacrifice a lot, but it draws the line at death. It draws the line at giving up life for the sake of another. One will scarcely die, hardly die. It's it's almost inconceivable for someone to die for a righteous person, somebody who is a a lawkeeper. Though, he says, perhaps, although that is really, really hard to imagine, it it is conceivable. It it is is a, a, a very small possibility that we would know somebody who is just so morally superior, so morally valuable, is such a, a useful person in this world. He says, perhaps, perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. It's, it's the remotest possibility, but it's still a possibility. If we could find someone that good, that worthy, that moral, that upright, that generous, that kind, that loving, that would be a person worth giving our life for. That's normal love. That's, that's usual love. Then he points us to abnormal love, unusual love. Because as he says here in verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So, here he's saying, is, is love that is extremely abnormal. It's, it's not the usual. It's, it's not the kind of love that we normally encounter, because here we're looking at people who are weak, who are ungodly, who are sinful, and even who are enemies of the Lord. And it's for such that Jesus gives His life. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's, that's stunning. That's unique. That's, it's so rare. It's so, so surprising. He died in their place. That's what that little word for means. It's not just for their benefit, for their good, but actually instead of them, as their substitute. He, he did what they should have done, and they get the benefit as if they did it, although He did it all. I remember there was a, a soccer game where uh, a player was playing so badly, it was a, in one of the big finals, and he was playing so badly that the manager took him off after five minutes. That's how bad he was playing, five minutes. 
He was substituted, and somebody else came on, and they played the remaining 85 minutes, and the team won. And the person substituted after five minutes got a medal as much as a person who played 85. He, he got the benefit of what that person did. And, and this is similar to what's being talked about here. And, and Paul is saying, try and, try and enter into and enjoy the love of God by seeing how undeserving you are of it. You want to know God's love. You want to experience God's love, especially when you're in the midst of trouble. Well, here's, here's the way to it. See, see how unlovable you are. See how you fit this description of weak, of ungodly, of sinful, of being an enemy. Here, here is a gift that we did not deserve. And, you know, when we get gifts from people, our, our gratitude is often determined by how much we think we deserve it. So, it might be Christmas time or a birthday time. You think, well, you know, I deserve a present or two. I, I, I should get a gift or two for my parents or a husband or a wife. And, and we're grateful. But imagine if you're a husband and you've really made a terrible blunder. You've, you've treated your wife badly. And, and you open the door and there's your wife. She's made this beautiful meal and she's bought you a present. And you're just, you're so much more full of gratitude. Not that it's ever happened to me. But I'm imagining and asking you to imagine as well. Your gratitude is determined by how little you sense you deserve it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to build this sense of, I am so unlovable, in order that I can appreciate this love so much more. Try and think of, try and think of the worst experience. So, for, for some people, it's public speaking, right? You have to do some public speaking. Well, try, try to imagine if you had to perform public speaking to get a job, and it's just a nightmare to you. But then somebody comes along and says, well, I'll do that speech for you as if you've done it, and you can walk into the job. You'd be grateful, wouldn't you? For me, it's not public speaking, obviously. It's my nightmare. My nightmare is the dentist. <laughs> if I could find someone anywhere, volunteers accepted, who would go to the dentist for me and sit in that chair and take the fear and the anxiety and the pain and I walk out of the dentist with these beautiful choppers, I'd take that in a heartbeat. I'd, I'd be so grateful for that person. And this is what Paul is pointing us to. He's saying, think of somebody who not only did public speaking for you or went to the dentist for you, but somebody who went to the cross for you instead of you. And you get the whole benefit of what he did. That, that, says Paul, is love. That's a proof of love 
So enter into it. Enjoy it by seeing how unlovable you are and how lovable Jesus is. The most lovable Jesus gave himself for the most unlovable people so that we could enjoy his love. Even in the midst of trouble, we get his love for us as he gives his life for us. There's a big proof, substitution. But there's more. There's, there's another convincing proof here, and it's this. God proves His love with propitiation. Big word. Unusual word. Not one that we're familiar with in our everyday lives, but it's here in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of of God. So, Paul here is saying two things. One, we've been delivered from the wrath of God in the past, and therefore we will be delivered from the wrath of God in the future. Look at that in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So, what does propitiation mean? Propitiation means a, a turning away of divine anger by a sacrifice. It's the turning away of divine anger by a sacrifice. And the best way I've come across to illustrate it is an umbrella. If you can imagine God's wrath as a massive, dark, thundercloud above you, and it's ready to, to break open and crash down upon you with thunder and lightning and a deluge that will sweep you away. And somehow or other, you can find a shelter that will bear the weight of that wrath. That is a propitiation. That's a turning away of God's anger. Where can we find that? Do, do you think you can find that with your church going, with your good works, with your charity, with the things you've done, the things you've not done, with church membership, even a profession of faith? Do you think that that's enough? It's not. You, you shelter under that. That will not protect you from the wrath of God. That's a flimsy shelter that will be blown to smithereens. There's only one shelter, and it's here in verse 9. His blood. His blood. And what's pictured here is Christ's death, His blood. That, that body of Christ bore the full wrath of God against sin until every drop was dripped, until every gale, every thunder peal, every lightning strike was finished and exhausted. And God said, it is finished. 
And Jesus said, it is finished. This is the only shelter, the only place that we can find that will turn away, that will shelter us from this wrath. And if you get under that blood, that body, that death, not one drip of, of God's wrath will ever touch you. Not the smallest piece of drizzle. It's bone dry. It's completely peaceful. There isn't a breath of angry wind. This is what Christ did on the cross. We, we mustn't think that God the Father was furious, but Jesus made him love us. No. It was God's own love, the Father's own love that gifted His Son to us so that He could exhaust His anger on His Son and love us justly. And, and what Paul's argument here is, if, if that's happened in the past on the cross, then when God's wrath comes at the end of the world to judge, we will be safe too. If we have sheltered under the cross of Christ, then we can look ahead to that final judgment, that coming wrath of God against all sin that has not been repented of, and feel totally safe. Look what it says. If we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So, Paul's saying, flee the wrath of God. Make sure you run from it to the only place of protection. That's what each of these young women are doing and professing they are doing. They're saying, there's nowhere else for me to stand safely. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than under the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is my only hope. And Paul's saying, flee it, run as fast as you can. Don't delay, don't wait. For, because yes, the wrath of God is coming at the very end, but it may come sooner to you if you die before the end, unsaved, without a shelter. Flee, run, he's saying. But it's not just flee the wrath, it's enjoy the love. Just, just take that shelter and feel the safety of it. Know that not one drip will ever drop upon you. That, that Christ's body, Christ's blood, has fully exhausted God's wrath, and therefore underneath we can enjoy His love. God's love removes God's wrath. That's propitiation. That's another huge proof of God's love. Substitution, propitiation, anything else. Well, Paul packs one other proof into these few verses, and it's reconciliation. Verse 10, for if 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So again, he's, he's got two truths here. We were enemies, we are now His friends. We were enemies. That's what he's saying, isn't it? If while we were enemies, what's the most, what's the most implacable, unresolvable conflict in the world? It's, it's probably the, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, isn't it? Many attempts have been made to resolve this. Usually, two words appear in all these political attempts, ceasefire and separation. So, there's an agreement, we'll stop shooting at one another and bombing one another, and then we'll live separately, the, the so-called two-state solution. Does that remove enmity? Does that remove hostility? No, it doesn't, does it? A ceasefire is not friendship, and separation is not reconciliation. But then you think, well, how, how even truer it is of the greatest conflict in the universe, which is that between sinners and God. On, on the one hand, there's, there's humanity with our natural, inborn enmity against having anyone rule over us and tell us what we should be and who we should be and what we should do and not do. There's something in us that truly resents that. You think of some of the sins that, that we commit. There's nothing else that can explain it, but it's just God said, don't, so I'm going to do it. Because you see how irrational it is, how damaging they are, how self-destructive. Nothing else can explain sin, but just he said, don't, so I'm going to do. Or he said, do, therefore I'm not going to do that. That's hostility. That's enmity. And on the other side, God has enmity towards such, rightly so. The, the hostility on our side is unjust, unjustified, and unholy. There's nothing about God that we should resent and fight against. The enmity on our side is unjust, unholy, and unjustified. But we've here got a problem on both sides. And therefore, how welcome these words. If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This is a, a reconciliation that deals with the enmity, the hostility in, in both parties. At the cross, God's anger and hostility and enmity towards sin was poured out on His Son. That, that deals with one side. But, but that doesn't solve the problem on our side, does it? Because there's still enmity. There's still hatred. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And He often does it by helping us see the reconciliation that God purchased on the cross. 
when we see that the anger, the enmity we deserve was poured out on His Son, it has a heart-melting effect. It has a hostility-removing effect. This isn't moving just towards a ceasefire and separation, but it's moving towards love and reconciliation. That, says Paul, is a proof of God's love, especially because it's the most offended party that takes the initiative. You know, when you end up in a conflict, you might say, well, okay, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that quite right, but look at what they did. And so we are saying, I am the most offended. Therefore, they've got to make the first move. I'm the most wrong, therefore, they've got to do right first. But here God's saying, I am the most offended, and I am taking the initiative. I'm taking the first step towards reconciliation, towards favor and friendship and fellowship. It brings us into friendship, deals with the cause of the conflict and removes it. And as he says here, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If his death accomplished such a reconciliation, his life brings us closer and closer into friendship and fellowship with God. His life in heaven, that's what he is all about. He's about reconciling God and sinners. This this means the God we hated, we can now love and be friends with. That's why he says in verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not reconciled till we receive it. Here, Paul is saying, receive it. It's all done. It's all completed. The reconciliation is here as a gift, waiting for you to pick it up by faith and have your heart melted by it so that you can receive God's love into your heart and have love go back to Him. God's love turns haters into lovers. And, and he's saying, rejoice in that. Rejoice in it. I don't know if you've ever been involved in, in reconciliation. I, at various points in my life, I've been involved in attempts at, at reconciliation. Many of them have failed, trying to, to bring people together. Often and after many hours and, and lots of work, just we can't get it over the line. We can't tie it all up. We can't fix all the loose ends and it all falls apart. Here is a completed, perfect, finished reconciliation. Receive it and rejoice in it. So, how does God prove His love for us? Well, we've seen Substitution, propitiation, reconciliation. Big words, but hopefully 
some simpler explanations. And he's saying here, look at God's love in Christ, the cross, more than your tea for troubles in the world. You remember that visual? He's saying, yes, you're in the midst of trouble. It's hard. It's painful. It's agony. It's, it does stir up questions and doubts and even accusations against God. And we turn to him and say, well, you say you love me. Prove it. Where's the evidence? I won't see it in my providence, my family, my business, my finances, my friendships, my marriage. I, I won't see it. And he says, I'll show you my love if you look in the right place. If you look at Christ on the cross, you will see my love in his substitution, in his propitiation, and in his reconciliation. So if you would look at that more than at your troubles, then, then you will have convincing proof that God loves me. And the amazing thing about this is, in verse 8, it says, God shows His love for us. And that word show is actually the word for commend. It's not just, um, you know, you can show something by just putting it on a table. Say, well, you know, I'm showing you something here as an exhibit. But that's not the word. The word here is like He's picking it off the table and he's putting it in front of you. He's thrusting it in front of you. He's saying, look at this. Look, look, examine this. Feast your eyes on this. See this. Enjoy this. Take this. Receive it. I'm commending it to you. I'm persuading you to do it. I'm not just here being dutiful and saying, well, here's the gospel. Take it or leave it. No, he's saying, I, I I'm here to argue with you and to persuade you and to beseech you and to present reasons and to appeal to you. And I put my whole being into commending my love so that you take it. And there, there are no better proofs of that than substitution, propitiation, and reconciliation. God shows, God commends, God persuades. God's grabbing you in your mind, in your heart, in your conscience, your soul, your whole being, and He's saying, would you see it? Would you take it? Would you enjoy it? This is what He wants for you. God commends His love to us. And as we get it, we want to give it too, don't we? That's what Paul's doing. And that's what we do when we get this. We want to give it. We become commenders and persuaders and ambassadors and spokespeople and evangelists for this great love. We can go to people in the midst of the worst troubles and say, yes, these are awful, painful things, but let me tell you about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Does our world not need to hear that today? This is what I invite you to do, young woman, to take this love you've experienced and you've received and you've enjoyed, that you've been persuaded of, and take it to persuade others and commend to others so that they too can maybe one day stand here and say, I love the Lord because He loved me 
And he gave himself for me. Let's pray. God of love, thank you for proving your love to us again and again and again through substitution, propitiation, and reconciliation. Use us to persuade others with the proofs of your love. We thank you, Lord, that there is no line for your love. There is no limit. There is no point where you say, enough. You have scrubbed the line with the death of your Son. In His name we pray, amen.